Hello and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange, host Etienne Jeanca Bouchard welcomes reoccurring guest Andre Bruno to the show. Andre is Director ETF Capital Markets at Fidelity Canada. In today's episode, Etienne and Andre break down all the notable ETF industry trends of the past year. 2022 brought approximately $35 billion in net new creations, good for the third best year in history following only 2021 and 2020. Some of the key topics discussed today include the resilience in fixed income flows, the slowdown in interest for crypto ETFs, dividend stocks making a strong return as the equity factor with the most inflows, and more. The panel also wraps up the conversation with a brief outlook of potential emerging trends for 2023. Today's podcast was recorded on January 18th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean Cabouchard, aka EJB. And uh, today, I, I guess I'd like to start off by wishing all of our listeners a uh, happy new year, um, you know, 2023. I think everybody's quite happy anyways, from an investment standpoint to finally put 2022 behind us. Uh, I'd like to highlight, though, that for our podcast, it was actually a record breaking year. And I just want to take the time to thank you all for your continued support as uh, most of our episodes throughout last year, which there, I think there were 14 of them, if not a couple more, uh, had over a thousand downloads. So really grateful for all the support from the advisor community, from the investor community. So thank you uh, once again for that. Um, with that said, I hope everybody's refreshed and had the opportunity to take some time to recharge the batteries as we start the new year. Uh, as I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, 2022 was definitely a challenging one from an investment standpoint, with both bonds and equities struggling as central banks embarked on one of the most aggressive rate hiking cycles that we've seen in a very, very long time, probably going back to the 70s um, in terms of the quickness and the size of the rate hikes that we saw uh, from as much from the Federal Reserve as from the Bank of Canada. But we have turned the page and I think everybody's ready to go. Uh, to see if we can, you know, find some some better opportunities out there this year. And, and we're very glad to be back with you on, on this show to, to provide perspectives on the Canadian ETF industry, as well as just investing uh, more broadly. And joining me today to, to discuss, you know, we're going to recap 2022, but we definitely want to spend some time on perspectives for the year that's to come. Uh, is Andre Bruno. Uh, Andre is now a recurring guest, been on multiple times on the show. Actually, our last episode that we did before going to on, on the holiday break was with Andre, where we discussed uh, fixed income, more specifically, fixed income ETFs, various asset classes, their performance, their flows. Uh, we talked rates. Um, so I guess, you know, for those that are interested in going back in time and listening to that, it is uh, still very timely, given we did it in December. And it is available on fidelity.ca or on your favorite podcast app. 
So Andre, I guess I'll, I'll bring you on. How, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us once again. Um, yeah, how are you doing, my friend? Doing pretty well, and thanks for having me once again. And, and just to echo EJB, uh, Happy New Year to everyone, all our listeners out there. Um, here's, to, here's to 2023 being a better year than 2022. I think that's what we're all hoping for. And uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully that's what gets delivered to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's what the doctor is ordering. Now let's see if that's what we get. Um, but uh, jokes aside, I think, you know, this episode, I really want to focus on the industry, the Canadian ETF industry, some of the main, I guess, or the key stats that we can find looking at the flows for the year. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we, I've, I've got bunch, a bunch of headlines or stats that I've pulled together and that we're going to dress one by one together. I'm going to get your perspectives. I'll react a little bit and uh, we can just kind of just flow fr from there. But the first one, I guess, that, that we're going to start with is just the outright amount of flows for last year, which we saw about $35 billion in net new assets last year come into the Canadian ETF industry. Uh, on the flip side of that, you actually saw funds, which we won't be discussing too much uh, on, on the podcast today, but we're actually in outflows of $35 billion last year. That's good for the third most uh, inflows in a, in a calendar year uh, in terms uh, of a total, only behind 2021 and 2020. So a lot of, a lot of inflows bring the total up to more than $300 billion. Your take on that, Andre, uh, you know, the ETF industry showing a lot of resiliency uh, last year. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's just kind of a, a testament to kind of the longer term trend as ETFs become a little bit more prevalent in the marketplace. Um, I, I think also you're just seeing a lot more interesting and bespoke products come to the marketplace in, in ETF land. And I'm sure we're going to cover a few of them, um, you know, in our conversations, you know, you know some asset classes or, or sorry, strategies that have been getting a little bit more popular, especially when we talk about 2022 is taking a look at kind of levered ETFs or, or lightly levered ETFs that, that provide, you know, a levered return, you know, anywhere between, you know, 125 to, you know, 133 uh, of the underlying. Um, so those have been gathering quite a bit of flows uh, in 2022, as well as, you know, co covered call strategies, which, which have been around for a few years now, but they're starting to get a little bit more traction as well. So I think, you know, if you think back to kind of when the ETF industry started, you know, it was a lot of, you know, passive index, cap weighted index type funds, whether you're looking at the bond side or, or sorry, equity side, we can talk about cap weighted, but, you know, index funds, even on the bond side as well. Um, I think, I think, you know, the ETF industry has branched out quite a bit and there's kind of a little bit of something for everyone. Uh, and I think, again, it's just getting more popular with financial advisors, you know, do it yourselfers and, and kind of just everyone uh, across the financial world. No, those, those are all good points. And, you know, when you think about, the attractiveness of attractiveness of ETFs for investors. One of the key points, obviously, you mentioned it is, is the choice. Like you literally have so many different types of strategies out there now that you can pretty much accomplish anything you'd like. You know, going down to almost a granular. If you look in the U.S., they got single stock ETFs now, also, right? Like you can pretty much do anything you want with the ETF vehicle. Um, and you know, the other obviously component is, is fees. And obviously, when performance is in there, that's something that. Uh, you know, maybe you, you spend a bit more time nitpicking, uh, albeit last year was actually a really good year for active managers. Uh, and, you know, in a challenging environment, those that, uh, you know, either have more defensive, you know, can take more defensive positions, uh, build some cash in the portfolio, something, you know, that an index product won't do. Um, and that's actually showed up in the ETF space also. 
right? In the sense that, so you mentioned like covered call strategies, uh, you know, in certain cases, factor strategies, thematics. Um, what's interesting, uh, to, I guess, the, uh, as a follow through on, on that is passive is now responsible for about 55% of flows. That was for 2022. If you compare it to 2018, uh, from 2018 to 2020, that number was actually 65%. So passive, albeit, is still the large chunk. And if you look at the total AUM, is still by far the biggest. Is the active side and the factor side and kind of everything else slowly clawing away at the uh, at the beast that is uh, index solutions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it certainly certainly is to a degree. And I think um, if you take a look at kind of the the flow breakdown, you see you see kind of. Um, the flows kind of being on the barbell when you take a look at the ETS side. So you see a lot of flows going into kind of, you know, the super cheap area, which are kind of classically have been kind of those index funds. But you're also seeing, you know, some flows go into kind of the, what we'll say, a little bit more expensive ETFs that, mm-hmm. are, that are typically those those active mandates. And just to digress a little bit about kind of active versus passive, I think it's something over 90% of fixed income uh, uh, active ETF fixed income managers uh, beat their benchmark last year. So that's a that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good statistic, uh, pretty good, uh, you know, a, a testament to active management. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think you're going to see a little bit more of that. And, and the question is, and we don't have the exact numbers. I mean, you talked about how 35 billion went away from mutual funds and 35 you know billion went into ETFs. So, you know, question is, is when you t- when you when you talk about that is, you know, I've got to assume some of those flows coming out of the mutual funds are moving into the ETF plan. The good question is, you know, how 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 much of those flows? Obviously, folks are starting to get a little bit more sensitive to to costs out there, especially in a year as we did last year. Um, so I think you know, you know some of those flows are certainly coming from folks looking for for lower cost solutions, and we are starting to see you know active management in ETFs, whether it's on fixed income or on the equity side as well. In addition to some of these bespoke products that historically have kind of only played in the mutual fund space. So I think certainly investors are taking note mm-hmm. of that and and some folks are, are kind of making the switch over to ETFs. Yeah, that's a great point, right? Because I mean, we've, we've talked about this before, I think. And, you know, Active is still in its infancy, it feels like in the ETF space where, uh, you know, on the fund side, I mean, obviously <laughs> the large majority of funds are are actively managed. Um, but on the bond side, it's it's really interesting because like you mentioned, there was such a high percentage of active managers that, did beat their benchmark in a very challenging environment where if you look at indices, which are for the most part, uh, if you look at the, you know, the, the aggregate indices, very skewed towards uh, government bonds and generally have quite long durations because of obviously dependent on what has been issued in the past. So probably much more sensitive in those uh, volatile rate years like we saw last year. Um, but Interestingly enough, albeit it was probably the worst year from a performance standpoint for bonds, if you look at those indices or even, you know, if you're a bond manager and you outperform your benchmark, you're probably not positive last year. Uh, but on a relative basis, it's great, right? Uh, which is which is kind of the, the catch-22, if you will. But uh, that being said, 19 billion of flows last year, 54% of the total went into bond ETFs or into fixed income categories with Another little tidbit, I'll, I'll let you comment on that first, and then I'll, I'll add a little curveball, which I'm sure you know what, what to expect. But uh, your take on, once again, we talked about the resiliency of the ETF space, but even more so, or hold even more true in a tough fixed income segment. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming off the year that fixed income had, you, you, you wouldn't think that you'd seen a ton of flows into it. But I mean, you know, typically we don't see, you know, the fixed income flows uh, um, come in higher than the, the, the equity flows from an ETF flow perspective year mm-hmm. over year. So, so, last, so last year was quite, a, quite an interesting year. Um, I think I know the point you're going to you're going to throw in there, the curveball. But, um, you know, I, if you think about, you know, let's let, let's break it down a little bit and think about where we saw those flows. So I won't I won't steal your thunder, but we did see. No, that's the curveball. You, you, you go ahead. You go <laughs> ahead. Did, it's, we, it's, we, it's the cash alternative space. Let's 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 discuss the elephant in the room. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was a bit it was a bit uh, even even from a flow perspective, it was a bit barbell. What we, what we saw a lot of the flows go into was, again, those cash alternatives. So think of. You know your HISA ETFs, obviously, with overnight rates going to where or overnight rates to where they are right now. You know, obviously, well north of four uh, percent. Whether you're talking about the BOC or or the Fed, obviously, tons of flow, flows were going into those cash alternatives. Obviously, a lot of folks were still worried about. You know, we're still in a rate hike cycle. Um, you know, both sides of the border still in a rate hike cycle. So, you know, I want to get get out of the way of that train and I want to stay in cash. They're giving me, you know, north of 4% uh, in a super liquid product. So obviously those are very popular. But on the other end of the spectrum, we also saw interest in kind of just, just aggregate bond indices. So, and I think that was a couple things. Number one, obviously rates moved a ton. In the back half of the year, the conversation started happening and it's still going on right now mm-hmm. is, you know, are we close to the end? Is the Fed going to stop? Is the BOC going to stop? Inflation's kind of turning a corner. We're trending in the right direction. So obviously some folks are starting to say, okay, maybe I'm going to start jumping into maybe slightly longer duration products, jump into those aggregate indice names. You know, think mm-hmm. your your global bond funds, your 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 Canada bond funds that are well diversified across sectors, across different areas of the fixed income market. Whether you're talking about corporates, uh, governments, munis, you know, you know what have you. Yeah. Um, so 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 we did see a ton of flows there. And again, yeah, the the cash products are are, are still quite popular. To your point, I, do you have the sat on how much flu? flu I think you probably got out of that. Last year it was eight point eight billion. So out of the nineteen billion, eight point eight of that went into cash alternatives it increased its total AUM in that category by more than 100% last year so it more than doubled what the assets were to start the year it's astounding and i i think to to your point the the interesting aspect is that you're actually getting paid to to hold cash now <laughs> right something that it feels like was never going to happen again when we were in you know 2020 2021 you are getting paid to own to own cash that being said you're also getting paid a lot more to own bonds. And I think that's where the discrepancy is actually quite interesting is if we look at the breakdown by category, you said, uh, you know, you see kind of that barbell almost so like cash, which is like no duration. But then at the same time, if you look at the, the various categories uh, by maturity, short term bond mandates had outflows of 400 million last year. And if you look at long term and midterm had one, uh, 1.8 and 1.4 billion respectively. So you're getting like no short-term bond buying, you're getting cash, but then you're getting long-term bonds, which it, and one, one thing that's kind of tricky with these is we don't know exactly who's buying and who's selling this stuff, right? We just see the aggregate numbers, but would you, would it be fair to assume that maybe there's a lot of retail investors that got a little bit worried, understandably so with the volatility and went to cash. And then maybe you saw on the flip side, you know, others in the investment community say this is an, this is the time to buy bonds. Like this is the time to add duration to take advantage of this such higher move in rates and, and benefit from eventual downside if we see a slowdown from from an economic standpoint. It's just crazy to see the dis- 
disparity it feels like yeah absolutely and i think i think what's going to be interesting in 2023 is is you know are we are we going to see a ton of outflows into those cash products and Mm -hmm. into kind of longer duration fixed income uh solutions um you know uh again you know we talked about inflation and how it is trending in the right direction um you know most people are are pegging the fed for you know somewhere around five percent for for the terminal rate you know some people say it might get a little higher, maybe 525, 550. But, you know, I think ultimately we, most people think, you know, this mm-hmm. year is kind of going to signal the end for, for rate hikes, assuming yeah. assume, assuming that inflation doesn't kind of tick higher, of course. But it'll be interesting to see if we start rotating away from those cash products mm-hmm. and we see outflows there and into kind of the, the longer duration aggregate products. Because mm-hmm. uh, in reality, what, what what might happen is, you know, there there might be, uh, some catch up that needs to be done uh, from an investment standpoint, because I mean, at the end of the day, most uh, for for most, the fixed income component in the portfolio is not meant to be there to drive total return in the portfolio. It's there to reduce volatility, to generate some income. But you know, so for example, you said potentially that could rotate back into into bonds, the cash alternative stuff, and and likely will. It's just extremely challenging to time because once again, we don't know exactly when rate hikes will stop. We don't know what the market will anticipate if things change from a macro perspective. But at the same time, the U.S. 10-year is already down, you know, 90 basis points, uh, you know, compared to to the peak that we saw back in October, uh, you know, at around 4.2%. It's down to 3.37% as of recording today. So, you know, some of that has already been gained, right? It's been a, it's been a good little period for to hold bonds. Um, but, um, you know, all, all that being said, I think it, it definitely will be something to keep an eye on, but so far this year, uh, the cash alternatives are continuing to get a lot of inflows. So, uh, time, time will definitely tell on that one. I think maybe we can shift the conversation a little bit away from, from fixed income and we can definitely shift back if we need to, but we do like to keep these, you know, short and sweet. And I want to make sure we can cover equities and, and multi-asset and some of those other categories, Actually, before we go into equities, there's one other little outlier there that's kind of, you know, bugging me as every time I see it because it was such a darling for the ETF industry in 2021. And that's the cryptocurrency space. So in 2021, there was more than six billion in net flows into cryptocurrency ETFs with last year seeing minus 118 million uh, in terms of total flows. And the total assets are now at around 1.7 billion. So a lot of that, a lot of that asset erosion is not from outflows. So actually, people didn't sell a lot of it last year, but because of the performance, uh, are down quite quite a lot. So there's a lot of people holding the bag, if you will, on cryptocurrency. What is your take for this year as we as we go into 2023? Because clearly, it was a challenging one last year. Not not necessarily on. I'm not asking for a crypto price target. Just more on the popularity of the ETFs. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what was the most interesting to me is that uh, the 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 shrinking in the asset base was well. It's not surprising that it's dominated by you know the the asset itself going down 50, 60 percent in a year. Yeah. But it, you you just would have expected a lot more outflows given kind of the year that crypto had. You know whether it's you know the drawdown in in the asset or you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. numerous bankruptcies that cropped up as well. So it, it is interesting that a lot of folks did hold on. Um, you know, I, I would have thought that, you know, folks buying the ETF were probably uh, a lot, you know, less of those kind of long-term investors. I would have thought those were the people, you know, 
who are, have their own wallets, who, you know, you know, go on the ex- crypto exchanges, buy physical. You know, you, you obviously hear about, you know, people hodling uh, as the term they use in crypto. <laughs> um, so it's, it's actually surprising that, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, more we didn't see more outflows in the crypto space. I, I think going into this year, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's, it's obviously, you know, popping back a little bit right now from a, from a price perspective. It'll be interesting to see if people, you know, come back in or, or if everyone's, uh, you know, just been scared and are going to stay away from it. So I think it'll be an interesting year for crypto. Uh, we'll see if it, you know, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a testament to its staying power if it, if it gets through this year. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I think it's, it is really quite surprising though, that just how little outflows there was that even seeing, you know, those, those significant draw drawdowns, if you will, in prices. Uh, but I, I wanted to make sure that we got 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 on that topic a little bit because uh, once again it was it was really a strong strong point if you will in 2021. If we shift to to equities, one thing that we end up talking a lot about of on this show is is the strategic beta or factor or quantitative side of investing because of our lineup that we have here at Fidelity. And we like to break down the factors also by flows to get an understanding of what type of stocks investors were looking for uh, from more, more from a style standpoint than just a geographic or sector standpoint. You know, what type of companies uh, were, were of interest to investors? And that, too, seemed a little bit surprising. The number one best selling factor from an, or I guess the, the, the factor with the most inflows last year were high dividend or income strategies. With 2.2 billion in uh, net net flows, uh, this uh, another one that was also uh, quite strong and also surprising because of the performance, which wasn't quite as stellar as it had been in the previous years, was ESG ETFs, which isn't necessarily fully a factor yet, or you know considered a factor, but it definitely is in that thematic or style uh, bucket. At 2.2 billion, also like I mentioned, but on the flip side of that. Low volatility ETFs had 700 million in outflows and they had a great year because when you do see choppy markets, companies with you know low standard deviation of earnings, lower beta, lower standard deviation of price, that seems to come in, in style and fashion as markets are more volatile. Um, so maybe now that we have seen volatility, we see flows coming in or what's your take on, on the factor side? I mean, when you, when you talk about the low vol, that one's a bit of a head scratch. That was a surprising stat. Um, I think it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was one of the better performing factors last year as well. It uh, was, uh, right behind uh, value uh, and dividend, which, you know, those three interchangeably, depending on the region, were, were the three best performers. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had a good answer for why we didn't we saw those outflows. I, I you know if you if you would if you would ask me, I would have guessed uh, you know inflows. You'd probably see low vol, you know maybe quality up there for for last year, given the year we had. So mm-hmm. it is surprising to see low vol down there. Uh, dividends have been super popular. To your point, um, you know which you know you 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 know you think about it conceptually. You think about dividend paying companies. Obviously, typically more mature companies, stable companies. Um, you think from a DCF valuation perspective, and you know you, you just think to kind of your CFA uh, CFA level one textbooks, and you think, okay, it's a dividend company. Their you know their valuations are based on cash flows or dividend. Interest rates are going up. You know you know your your present value is going down. Why do I want no to bueno, a dividend no stock? Bueno. But <laughs> I mean that's what the textbook says. But you know obviously the textbook doesn't always play out in real life. So yeah. 
it was interesting to see for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- throw the textbook out the window for 2022 was kind of what happened with the factor side. Um, actually, it's, it's interesting that the, the one with dividend because uh, a lot of income oriented strategies on the ETF side, and this is just from uh, having, I guess, been in the industry and have looked a lot of those strategies up, whether it's, you know, the one that we have in Fidelity or some that are competitors, you tend to see uh, a little bit uh, overweight to some of the cyclical sectors like energy, uh, in certain cases, financials, which also, you know, usually don't do too well as we're kind of pricing in a recession. We're in that late cycle phase. But on the flip side, a lot of them are underweight technology and kind of the internet stuff and comm services. So less sensitive a little bit to move in rates on that front. What I'm worried about, though, is going into this year, if you look at, say, for example, the yield you can get on you know a, a dividend strategy or the yield you can get on an aggregate bond index, like you're not getting paid much more to own dividend stocks than you are to own investment grade bonds. And you know what I mean? Like you're not getting compensated for the excess volatility that you're taking on because albeit they're, you know, steady dividend paying companies, they are, they have a higher standard deviation than bonds. So it's going to be, I think, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic on this, but it's just, it feels to me if I'm an income oriented investor, um, you know, the, the objective is to generate cash flows for my retirement or whatever it may be. Why would I be taking on more risk with dividend stocks if I can get paid four and a half, five percent with an investment grade bond mandate when I can get the exact same thing? That's what I'm getting paid to own those dividend stocks. No, I think you make a great point. Um, When you take a look at it from a risk reward perspective, obviously, the reward on the bond side is is certainly capped relative to to the equity side. But that's true. You know, and, and we don't necessarily. And here's the thing. It's it's quite possible that, you know the folks buying their dividend stocks are also buying bonds on, on the 40 side of their portfolio as well. Right. That's true. So, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but yeah, you know, to your point, if you want to stack them up one by one, you're, you're just looking for income only, obviously, and you're a more conservative investor, obviously fixed income makes a ton more sense, you know, assuming you're getting the same yield as you are on dividends. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 60, 40, that, that automatically brought me to another, Another point that I wanted to look at, which was uh, multi-asset ETFs, which are basic, you know, for the most part are these balanced solutions. So they incorporate, uh, it's like a, an ETF of ETFs for the most part, where you're buying, you know, in one ticker, you're buying, you know, 12 underlying ETFs in one, in one go and, and very much simplifying the investment process for a lot of investors, for a lot of advisors. Those products had been really, really popular, I think for the past three years. Uh, but, you know, they were positive last year. Um, but only had a 12% increase in total AUM. So much lower growth than what we had seen in the previous years. Is that potentially due to the fact that, you know, the 60-40 kind of got mulched last year because of how bonds and equity correlation increased? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you break it down just into equity and fixed income. If you look at the fixed income side, you know, again, I think the proofs in, in, in the data there, like tons of folks were flying to those cash alternatives. So there's probably tons of folks who are like, you know, for my 40 I want to be super short duration. I want to be in cash products. I don't want any, you know, any long duration, mm-hmm. any long duration bonds in there. So, you know, I think that was probably, you know, hurting the multi-asset to some degree. And on the equity side, I think f- folks were just like, I don't want broad market exposure. I want to be defensive. I want my dividends. I want my, well, I, you'd think they want low ball, but they didn't want low ball, <laughs> but I want my dividends. 
<laughs> it's a trap. I, it's a trap. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think when you look at it through that lens, it, it kind of makes some sense why folks probably were just saying, I want to avoid the 60-40. And we know the 60-40 over, you know, long term makes sense. Um, but last year, given where bo what bonds were doing, what equity markets are doing, I think folks were just saying, I want to get super defensive, uh, stick to cash on the fixed income side and stick to those defensive names on the equity side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I, th I don't think that category is going away by, by any means, right? And, you know, you, you see these headlines sometimes, 60-40 is dead. People have said that, I'm sure, multiple times over the past 30, 40 years. Anytime you get those kind of wacky years, like we did see in 2022, and correlations do seem to increase. But uh, the long-term portfolio strategy seems to definitely be intact. And we're starting to see that now, where bonds are, you know, holding up a little bit better while equities seem to be a bit more volatile and and you're you're getting that compensation once again from from bonds uh obviously when bonds are at yielding nothing obviously they're going to be getting more sensitive to to equities um where can we take this you want to let, let, how about we dive into some perspectives for 2023 and some things to uh not not, not that we anticipate but you know things that we're keeping an eye on and that could occur over the next year or are th trends that you're keeping an eye on uh leave this fairly open but any anything you're thinking about going into this year from uh, an etf industry perspective yeah for sure i'd say i'd say if we're thinking about um if we're thinking about the etf industry specifically i think i think what's interesting and we talked about this a little bit is 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 that the products in, in the etf space are getting a little bit a little bit uh a little bit less vanilla and a little bit more bespoke. So I think we're going to see a lot more, you know, interesting stuff come out of the space. Like I said, leverage ETFs are, are starting to take off. Cover call ETFs are, are getting even more and more popular. Um, and, and, you know, even outside of that, um, I think you're going to see a lot more. And we are starting to see more active equity ETFs hit market. So I think that's going to start mm -hmm. to get uh, a little bit more popular. So bringing some of those really good managers that have only been on the fun side since, you know, forever, I think we're going to start seeing some folks potentially come in into the ETF space. We're already starting to see it. There's issues out there that are, that are throwing some some active equity ETFs out there. Um, so I think it, it it's going to continue to get a little bit more interesting in the ETF space. Um, when we take a step back and we just think about kind of markets in general, you know, if last year was you know, kind of an inflation story the whole year. And as a result, a central bank story. I think this year, what's kind of going to be the, the focus, especially at least for the first half of the year, is kind of these recessionary fears. So obviously on both sides of the border, there's a lot of talks is, you know, are we going to get a recession this year? Are we going to get a recession this year? Um, so I think what I'm looking at from that perspective is just keeping a close eye on economic data. So taking a look at consumption, uh, taking a look at, um, you know, something interesting to look at is credit card delinquencies, mortgage delinquencies, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So just just keeping an eye out to see if there's any cracks in in kind of the economic story here um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, just, just where we're headed. So, you know, you, you read through all these reports. There's there's some banks that are saying the U.S. is going to go into recession. Other banks saying, no, I think we're going to avoid a recession. So there's not a ton of consensus of whether or not the recession is coming. Um, when you take a look at Canada, I think we're... I think the recession risk is a little bit higher in Canada just because the the health of the consumer balance sheet is a, a little bit uh, a little bit worse mm -hmm. than than uh, folks to the south of the border there. Obviously, the Canadian consumer has tons of debt. Uh, the mortgage 
you know, just, just the way mortgages are in Canada are much, much different. We have a large, much, much larger proportion of floating rate mortgages relative to the U.S. If you also take a look at the U.S., a lot of folks termed out their mortgages. They can go 30 years in, in the U.S., so a lot of folks did do that when, when rates bottomed out. So we're certainly a lot more sensitive to interest rate moves up here. Um, so I'd say on a balance of probabilities, um, you know, the likelihood for recession in Canada is probably a little bit higher than that, that of the United States. Um, so again, you know, ec the economics is what's going to be driving things, I think, at least for the first half of the year. And then ideally, we'll get some sort of, you know, clarity on whether or not, yep, recession's here or nope, we've happened to have happened to avoid it and let's keep moving forward. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Well, that, that's a very good summary and uh, a lot of different things I could unpack there. But, you know, I guess I'll, I'll highlight one thing that you mentioned also is that kind of the unknown seems to be seems to still be around in 2023 as we start the year. If you look at some of the macro data, you know, if you look at like, for example, uh, ISM purchasing managers indexes in the U.S. or the IV in Canada, econo economic activity is definitely slowing. But then you're also getting mixed signals from consumers where Yes, you know, for example, today on January 18th, retail sales maybe undershot a little bit in the U.S., but then, you know, on, you know, employment's still doing really well. It's kind of, you're getting these mixed signals on the economy until we get clarity. You're probably going to see more volatility, and that also means mitigating or mis, uh, risk mitigating strategies probably being some type, some pretty popular stuff. If you look at, for example, alternatives or absolute return type strategies, that's one thing I'm keeping an eye on. I also think, you know, one the one thing that could be uh, a continuation of last year is bonds getting more flows than than equities just because of, of of where yields are and I think trying to rebalance slowly to a more neutral mix. Um those are definitely the two that I'm keeping an eye on. And then from a factor perspective, obviously to see if, you know, that low vol which was an outflows uh you know starts to get some uh some attention as once again we kind of get a bit more uh volatility and uncertainty to to start this year. But all of those great points, Andre, I think, you know, we're going to wrap it up there. It's been 30, 30 minutes or so. Uh, thank you so much for joining us once again. Um, any final thoughts before we, we, we wrap it up? No, I mean, I think, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think, um, I think again, there's still going to be some volatility here, at least for the first half of the year here. Well, well, again, we, we figure out kind of what, what direction the economy is going to go in, um, you know, from a bond perspective, Again, you mentioned it earlier, kind of the, you know, the, the 10 year rallied and was sorry, what, down 80, 80 or so basis points, yeah. you said from the peak. Um, so I think you need to start looking at it, folks. I know we're still in a rate hike cycle, but you, you don't want to miss a, miss the bus on those yields. Things are looking attractive. We've been used to this low interest rate environment for so long. Um, I think ultimately, if you can get your bond mandates, you know, north of 5%, which many, many you know, ETFs and, and mutual funds, uh, bond mutual funds are, are offering yields, you know, north of 5%. I think you need to seriously consider it. Take a longer term view with respect to your fixed income and just know like, you know, if you can get paid your five, six, 7%, um, that's going to be, that's going to be really good for your 60, 40. I know we were used to getting paid absolutely nothing, uh, but this is a different <laughs> time. And I think that yeah. 60, 60, 40 is a little bit, it, it, I don't want to say it's fully back. In but better it's, shape. It's, it's in better shape. It's, it's a much better shape now. <laughs> it's in much better shape. Well, the ex-fixed income guy praising bonds. Who would have thought? Andre, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. Have a great start to your year, and, and we'll, we'll be back soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects. Don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter 
and subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a five-star rating or review. Thanks again. See you next time.